are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. But right now, I'm just going to introduce Chris Gambangi, leader of the church. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Yeah, great. And Chris, um, you're going to be speaking to us again. And we've just finished uh, an amazing series going through the book of Galatians. Uh, You can see all of that uh, on our YouTube page. If you want to see any of that, we were talking all about grace. But right now, Chris, what are you you talking on this morning? Yeah, so today um, we're going to be looking at Job and the whole book of Job, actually, and, uh, and really digging into the context of suffering and God, what, what about suffering? What, what does that mean for us and, and how can we handle that? Wow, so you, you're going to go through the whole book of Job in, uh, what, what is it, uh, for, for 30 minutes? 30 minutes? <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, um, Chris, I just want to pray for you Great. and um, then I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, Father, we're just um, so blessed by Chris and all that he does and all he shares. We just pray, Lord God, that you use him now to bring the word of God, your word, to life as we um, uh, just get into and dig into the suffering and what it's about and, um, and where you are in the midst of that. And so far, we just pray, bless us as we uh, listen and um, bless Chris and use him powerfully to speak to us, I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Barney. So, so there you have it then, um, going through the book of Job. And actually, as we do that, I'd love it if this week you were able to have your Bible open with you. And uh, it might just be that you don't have a Bible. And if that's the case, then you know what? We can get you one of ours and uh, we, can, we can send it to you, deliver it to you. And again, like Barney mentioned, if you get in touch with us through our contact page, then uh, we'll get one of these posted to you uh, this week. Um, But before we kind of get stuck into the the book of Job and going through it, let me just tell you a story from my childhood. When I was young, we were one of those families which only had one TV in the living room. There was absolutely no TVs in bedrooms. Our, Our parents always thought that they would just bring trouble. But as you can imagine, with four of us all approaching teenage years, our our TV tastes were different. And so one day, a a friend of mine was getting a a new TV in his bedroom and he offered me his old one. Amazing, so good. Having convinced my mum that this would be the opportunity of a lifetime, um, I was allowed to get that TV in my room. It was great. I could watch what I want. None of my younger brother's Scooby-Doo rubbish. I could watch things like Keenan and Kel. Anyone remember that? It was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, Sean. And so um, what would happen, though, is that um, I would find that my other brothers started going into my room when I wasn't there. And uh, we, right, you know, I wasn't happy with this intrusion of my privacy. And so we made a rule that they were only allowed in my room if I was there present with them. And so there was this one afternoon, I remember coming home from school and lo and behold, my, uh, the, my other brother, not the one that watches Scooby-Doo, but the other one was in my room. I think he was playing PlayStation or something on my TV. And so quite rightly, I kicked him out of my room. Having had my trust betrayed, um, he, he was out. Now he would then say, but you're home now. You're, you're in your bedroom, so therefore I'm allowed to be in there. And of course, I wasn't having any of that. 
And uh, what happened is that, of course, he went crying to mum and dad. And um, my, my dad, being a man of very few words, came up to my bedroom and said, see, I told you TVs cause nothing but trouble. And in that moment, he pulled the TV clean out of the socket and chucked it down the stairs, smashing it into millions of bits. Unbelievable. I mean, talk about unfair, unjust, a punishment that was I did not deserve. My privacy had been breached, the agreement had been renegade, and I was then given the punishment. Couldn't believe it. But I, I tell that story because from a young age, all of us have a sense of justice and fairness. And when things kind of go wrong, we look to answers and explanations, we look for, for reasons for the injustice. And, and that's why I love the book of Job. And I love that it's in the canon of scripture, because here we have a man who is labelled from the very first few verses as blameless, upright. Uh, of course, he's not perfect, but he loves God and he lives according to his ways. He is the man who has lived the righteous path. He's the type of man that follows Proverbs and he's wise and he's measured. Surely, if anyone deserved to reap good things, it would be Job. And yet... As you may well already know, Job experiences great suffering through no fault of his own. And so this morning's talk is called Job, the Righteous Sufferer. The book of Job it, um, can speak into the infantile views of fairness, like, like mine, right up to the really deep-seated anguish of suffering that people go through in life, from death of loved ones, young and old, to loss of property and possessions through flash floods and, and just the disasters of this world. All across our world, in every setting, culture and society, bad things happen. And Job helps us explore how we handle that with trusting God. And you might be wondering how, if there really is a loving God, that he could allow bad things to happen? How could he allow the virus to spread out over the whole world and kill so many people? Well, Job just helps us to explore that, the question, if life isn't good, is God still just? What can I make of life when it's tough? And whose fault is it anyway? And, and does that matter? How can I trust God even when life isn't fair and we suffer for no good reason? So, Quite a bit to unpack this morning. And Job's story just invites us to consider what wisdom looks like in the midst of physical pain. This is part of the wisdom books. In fact, not long ago, Phil Dunkar spoke uh, from Ecclesiastes, which was great to, to cover that wisdom literature. Today's Job, and maybe in the future we'll do uh, Proverbs and, and some of the other books like Song of Songs. But in the midst of physical pain and suffering, this is a book that can teach us how true wisdom can bring peace in dark times. And so my prayer today is that God would speak to you, reveal his wisdom to you through this book and this message, and that you would gain a sense of his perspective on your life, even in the midst of hard times. In many countries, names carry important meanings and tell us about people. And the name Job can be interpreted to mean, where is my father? You, you'll see throughout the book that this 
is a question that he ponders a lot. And uh, as the book is 42 chapters, like I said, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I will read parts of it. And so up front, I just want to let you know about the main characters in the book. And so we've got God, of course, although God is a s- silent for much of the book. He appears at the beginning and right at the end. We've got the Satan, or we say Satan, and that means the one who is opposed. And he is this character that assumes that Job only loves God because, uh, of, because of what he has. And he kind of wants to put that theory to the test, which God allows. We've also got Job, who is a man that was uh, blameless and upright and feared God, uh, which means that he has the right reverence of God. A bit like a fire, it's beautiful and approaching, yet it's also highly dangerous and to be honoured rightly. God is exactly the same, beautiful and approaching, but to be revered and, and feared even, the Bible would use that language, uh, because he's, he's an uncontainable, unconsuming fire. He's amazing. We find out from the first few verses that Job has got 10 children, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, loads of oxen and donkey and servants. He, in verse 3, it says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was, he was a rich, well-educated, well-traveled individual. And then the last one is we've got the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. They're all non-Israelite people like Job. So they're, they're Gentiles like you and me. They're people that don't come from a, an Israelite or Jewish background. And these friends, they try to give Job advice. They assume that Job must have done things wrong to deserve the hardship that he's going through. And so they come up with a bunch of ways in which Job might have sinned against God and why he deserves it. Good friends. Hey. So here we go. We're going to go through the book now um, and we'll start by going through the first few chapters. Chapter one, it opens us by telling us about Job and just setting that scene about this man of God. But in verse six, it takes this strange turn into this angelic court scene with God and the angels and Satan all there. And God points out Job, who he says in verse eight, that there is no one on earth like him, that he is blameless and upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. We then get Satan basically saying that Job only loves God because of all that he has, that he obeys God in order to get what he wants. And if he didn't have it, then of course he wouldn't obey God. And so in chapter one, verse nine, it says this, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan is kind of saying, if God was to strip it all away, then we would see Job's true colours and see that people's love for God only comes from what he gives them and not for who he is. Surprisingly, God allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job and Job loses all his children It's a tragic day. All his cattle is gone. All his income streams have gone. It's devastating. And at the end of chapter one, remarkably, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a song that many Christians sing and can bring great hope actually in times of trouble. It's amazing verses that he speaks out truth. Even though Job has no idea about the challenge that Satan had given God, Job continues to worship God and sees his life for what it is. 
Then we head into chapter 2. And we're, we're back in that court scene again. And Satan says, Job only continues to worship you, God, because he's healthy in himself. And again, God allows Satan to attack Job's skin. And Job is struck with sores from, from tip to toe. And uh, by this point, his wife has had enough. Obviously, she's devastated with all that they've lost. And she gives him a hard time. And she says, just curse God and die. That would be better than what's happening to us right now. And again, in verse 10 of chapter 2, Job replies, Shall we accept only good from God and not bad? His uh, friends then turn up in verse 11 and they weep with him. They sit with him silently for seven days and seven nights. This is such good friendship. They're not trying to fix the problem. They're not condoning it. They're not justifying God's actions or anything like that. But they're just being there. It's quite a good way to go about friendship, to be honest. We can learn a lot from this. You know, often when Catherine has had a bad day, the worst thing I can do is tell her how to fix it. Sometimes on a Wednesday, she has a particularly difficult lesson. And for the first few weeks of this term, she would come home and I'd be like, oh, well, why don't you do this, do that? You know, I don't, you know I've not teach for or taught for uh, six or seven years, but I was kind of giving her all this advice. And, you know, n- not surprisingly, it didn't go down well. And so now I set a reminder every Wednesday, just listen and be patient. And uh, the best, that's because that's just the best thing to do. And do you know what? Our marriage on a Wednesday is so much better for it. And that's such good advice that the, the friends give us. We then get chapter three and we find out how Job is really feeling inside. Because whilst he gave these great um, platitudes to God and recognises his place before God, he now unleashes his thoughts about the destruction in a long, elaborate poem which covers this chapter. And here's a few um, out of it. Verse three says, may the day of my birth perish. Verse four That day, may it turn to darkness. Verse 6, may it not be included in the days of the year. Verse 7, may that night be barren. Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the room? It's really deep, gut-wrenching stuff. And it shows us all all the different sides of Job. He's not just a guy standing there in the midst of a disaster in denial. No, he is processing his emotions and he's speaking them out. That's, that's really powerful and important for us to do. Perhaps you've been in this place, maybe you are right now. Well, the Bible doesn't tell you to just smile and be happy. It shows us the real human nature of life, loss and despair. In the culture that Job lives in, their view of the world is very black and white. If you're good, you will reap good things. And if you are bad, you will suffer. So someone who is suffering like Job is, everyone around would think, well, you must have done something wrong. And that now takes the bulk of the rest of the book. From chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 37, we get this long back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends. Chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Then Eliphaz the the Temanite answered and said this to Job, Remember who that was ever innocent perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You know, these friends throughout the book operate on one big assumption, and that principle is the one of Proverbs. It says, If you are wise and good, then you will have success and favour. And if you are evil and stupid bad things will happen to you. But do you know what? The book of Proverbs isn't about promises, but about principles. 
It's another amazingly wise book, but it's a book about how things turn out in general when we are wise and trust with God. But it's not a rule for how they will always turn out. As we see, sometimes good people suffer and sometimes bad people prosper. But it is a principle that if you are wise, fear God and trust him, then you will reap the same. And so in chapters four uh, to 28, there are three cycles of the friends and Job debating. Is God just? And if he is, does he run the world on the principle of justice? Both Job and the friends have an argument and an implication and then a conclusion. Job's argument is that I am innocent. The implication is that this suffering is not God's justice being enacted. And his conclusion is that God is unjust or God doesn't operate the world according to the principle of justice. Whereas the friend's argument is that God is just and the implication is that he does run the world according to justice. And their conclusion is that Job must have sinned and God is punishing Job because of that. And so throughout those chapters, basically, this is back and forth of them uh, defending their assumptions. According to them, Job is getting what he deserves. And the friends, they know God is just and they, they know the world is ordered by fairness. And so Job must have done something wrong. And his friends, they spend much time speculating about how God sent this suffering to him. In chapter 22, they even write lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. Job, he clearly, he goes through a real emotional roller coaster of feelings. And uh, we saw some of that already in chapter three. But at moments throughout this, he defends that God is just and right. And at other moments, he accuses God of being reckless and unfair, even corrupt. Here's some examples for you. So Job thought that God was just, uh, was just but he struggles to reconcile that with his suffering. And so in 27, he, he says, the Almighty has made my soul bitter. Job even accuses God of being mean and a bully. And so in chapter 16, he says, he has gnashed his teeth at me. He even goes as far as saying that God orchestrates all the injustice in the world. And so in chapter nine, he says he mocks the, at the calamity of the innocent. But he does want to believe that there's hope. And in chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. He believes in hope, resurrection hope for the future. He believes in God, but he's all over the place. And Job's last statement, it comes in chapters 29 to 31. And basically he demands God turn up and explain himself. He wants to put God on the dock. And what he says, he says this, Oh, that I heard one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Job demands answers from God. And um, he wants God to give an account for why he's gone through all of this. And do you know what? Many of us want to do the same. Surprisingly, though, we get then a quick twist. A young man listening in joins in the conversation. Having heard Job and the three friends debate about this, his suffering with no answer, Elihayu gets up and speaks. And this is in chapter 32. And he says, and Elihayu, the Buzite, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. Eliyahu, he has a similar argument to the friends. 
argument. And that is that God is just. And his implication is the same. God runs the world uh, on the principle of justice. And, but his conclusion is just a little bit more sophisticated. It's not that God uses suffering as a punishment, but God can use suffering as a warning to avoid sin in the future or as, uh, to help build character. Maybe he has some, there's some truth in that. But surprisingly, Job doesn't even respond to Eliyahu. And instead, we go into chapter 38. Uh, so, sorry, uh, Eliyahu must have spoken chapter 37. Sorry if I got that wrong. But chapter 38, God then turns up and speaks. God comes to give an account, I guess. He comes to speak. And this is what we've all been waiting for throughout those first 37 chapters. And he comes in a great storm. Can you just like imagine it? You're, you're there, you're demanding answers from God. And he comes in this storm. And chapter 38 says this. God says, who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Throughout the whole book, we've been gearing up for God to be put on trial and give answers to why suffering exists in the world. And when God speaks, he doesn't give any answers at all. Cheers, God. Now, instead, he turns the tables around and he puts Job on trial and he starts asking Job questions and us by extension. It's like a parallel to the start of the book where we have the court scene and God is surrounded by the angelic beings. Do you know what? God is on the throne then and God is on the throne now. Rather than God being put in the dock, Job is placed in the dock. And in this section, there's three things happen which we're going to run through. God speaks... Job responds and then God acts. So God speaks. Chapter 38 to 42. When God speaks, he, he does a grand tour of everything of the universe. And so he starts with creation of the world. And so he says things, things like this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Or who determined its measurements? Surely you know. He then does a tour of the weather. In verse 8, he says, this is chapter 38, verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Uh, In a later verse, he says, can you send forth the lightning bolts that they may go and say, here we are. It's one of Catherine's favourite verses. In uh, the third thing he does is a tour of the universe and the stars. In, in verse 31, he says, Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? He then does a, creation, uh, a, a tour of the animals in creation. So chapter 39, he says things like this. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the carving of the does? In this section, he talks about bears and ostriches. Uh, oxen and and on and on and on and then fifthly in chapter 40 he goes on with the creation of massive animals he says things like behold behemoth which i made as i made you he eats grass like an ox behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly and in chapter 42 can you draw out leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord can you put a rope in his noose in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook you know, chapter 38 to 42 are, are these 
depths are these things that God reveals that we just don't even understand. You know, there's depths of the ocean that we've, we haven't even plunged to yet. There is animals that we're discovering on a daily basis. There's area of the universe that we've not even heard of. There's great beasts which we can't even understand. And yet God has ordained and ordered everything in creation. God asked Job question after question after question. I mean, don't get me wrong, God gets why Job is asking about suffering. And he lovingly responds by showing Job that even um, if, he, if he did understand, he, he wouldn't be able to. Because he can't even understand the things that he can see, like bears and ostriches, let alone the magnitude of, the, of his place in the universe. You know, when God speaks, he shows Job that his understanding is much smaller than he thinks. And that God is much bigger and the world and the universe much more intricately and delicately balanced than you could ever imagine. Even if God gave an answer, Job couldn't even comprehend it. Much like me and you couldn't. You know, I had this moment when I was younger, I was doing something called an Alpha course, which is where you can find out more about Christianity. We, we run them as a church regularly. I was in Brighton at the time and I, I thought I was the big man and I was going to this course uh, asking question after question about suffering and creation and the end, of, end times and all these things. And um, I remember there was this moment where this guy on the course drew a big circle. And he said, if this circle represents all the knowledge throughout all the ages, throughout all the generations of the universe, how much of that circle could you fill in? And I kind of sort of did a little dot, you know, probably, probably that much. And then he's like, ah, so what makes you think that you know enough to completely rule out the existence of God and live as though your dot of knowledge is all there is to know? It completely undid me, actually. And Job is having that moment. He is completely undone. It's that moment that Job is having when he realises he has no place questioning God. God pays attention to the detail of the universe in ways unimaginable to us. God speaks and then Job responds. So this is that second thing. Job responds and he says this in chapter 40. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So he first of all responds in silence and then in repentance. Uh, chapter 42, Job answered the Lord in verse 2 and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not know. And understand things too wonderful for me, which I do did not know. Hear and I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, Job recognises that God's ways are so much higher than his ways and he is completely undone. And it's good for us to think, how, how would you respond? If God is real and the author of the universe and the cosmos, then is it just possible that he knows things that we don't know? You know, Job learns that God is big enough to be shouted at and yelled at and talked to about suffering. But he also learns that God is big enough to have understanding outside of our understanding. In Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, it says, God is in heaven and you are on, uh, you are on earth. So let your words be few. 
That right there is unbelievable wisdom that we can all dwell on for the rest of our lives. And uh, it's, it's amazing to know, actually, to, to remember our perspective and our place in the universe. But incredibly, that is not the end of the book. You see, God speaks, Job responds, but then in chapter 42, right at the end, we see that God acts. And God reveals not just his knowledge and understanding, but his vindication, mercy and restoration. So let's just talk about those three things. Vindication. In chapter 42, it says this, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Elivaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has done. See, as the book ends, we find out that Job was right all along. His friend said that he must have done something wrong. Job said he didn't, and God said Job was right. He is vindicated. Suffering was nothing to do with what Job did. God lifts up Job up and acknowledges Job was right all along. The righteous sufferer is vindicated and given honour. Incredibly, not just vindicated, but we see mercy. Having lamb blasted the friends in, in verse uh, 8, uh, God says, My servant Job is now going to pray for you. He's going to pray for you, friends. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. You know, Job is going to pray for, on, uh, for the friends on behalf of them. He's going to intercede for them. And because he does that, God is not going to treat them as their sins deserve. He says, I will show you mercy. Uh, that is incredible that Job prays and the foolish friends receive mercy. And then the third thing was restoration. So in verse 10 it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. You see, Job is restored. Everything that was taken away is given back to him and even double. Not only does Job and his friends receive mercy, which is not getting what their sins deserve, but they get grace. They get what they don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what we've been talking about through the whole book of Galatians. You see, just as the suffering was not a punishment for bad behaviour, so the restoration actually was not a reward for good behaviour, but an act of God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favour. Job had cried out to God and everyone accused him. His enemies, his wife, his friends, even Satan accused him. And yet Job is vindicated and God shows that all along he was right. Job prays for his arrogant and foolish friends and honour and grace and strength and restoration is poured out on all. Does that remind you of anyone? If, if you've read any part of the New Testament, then hopefully it reminds you of Jesus. Because Jesus is the true righteous sufferer. This is what this book really points us towards. He is the greater Job. Because Jesus suffered injustice all the way through his life. And especially at the end. He gets accused by his friends, by his family, by his enemies and Satan. Jesus never puts a foot wrong. And yet he suffered unimaginable torment. Like Job, he cries out for deliverance. And just like at the end of Job, God acts. The righteous sufferer walks out of the tomb of death, unarmed and completely vindicated. He is exalted to the place of honour, strength and wisdom, power and majesty. And to this day, he prays for his foolish friends like you and me. He intercedes before the Father. God hears his prayers and doesn't treat me and you as our sins deserve uh, by our folly, but instead according to Jesus' righteousness. We get mercy 
and we get grace. You know, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are restored to a relationship with God. This relationship is remarkable because it is a relationship with the one who has suffered every injustice, every issue, every pain that you have. And he identifies with you. He understands you. He walks through the journey with you. You know, God is not seated on a high lofty cloud looking down at the suffering of this world without a care. No, actually, he came into this world as a baby. We're going to be looking at that through the four weeks of December. He suffered every injustice, even death on a cross, to restore to us everything that we lost when we turned our back on him. So what about us? What do we do when we go through suffering? This, I'm going to end. We're going to pray in a second. But just as I end, there are three bits of application. What it means for ourselves, the church and our community. So what does it mean for ourselves? Firstly, we, we need to talk to God. We need to come to him. Notice that the, uh, the friends spent the whole time coming up with reasons why Job was suffering. Do you know what? In the whole book, Job was the only one who took his problems to God. In the whole book, Job is the only one who prays. And we need to be a people of prayer when we go through life's difficulty because we have a God who understands. Even in the midst of God's great big universe, this book shows that despite Job's brief time on earth, God deeply cares about him and all our individual life. Do you know what? Your life, it matters to God. Secondly, underneath the assumptions that God runs the world on the principle of justice, there's a deeper assumption that the friends have that they have enough perspective to determine how God should run the universe. And uh, what God shows us is that our perspective on earth is just at the horizon of our lives. It's not on the vast expanse of the universe. And so we can perceive from our perspective that the greatest good that God could do is end our suffering. But maybe God is calling you to just give up that view and trust that the greatest thing we can do is actually trust in his wisdom and in his understanding. So let's not let pain and suffering drive us away from God. Instead, it should drive us right to him. Wisdom in this book is revealed as knowing our place and knowing God's place. So that's what does it mean for ourselves? What about our church? What does that mean for our church? You know, we don't have to explain suffering away. We can just acknowledge that it exists. We can weep with those who weep and help them to see the magnitude of God. At first, Job's friends, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights in silence. They didn't try to defend, find solutions or fault, but they just met him where he was. And we need to remember that we live in a world where there is suffering, but we have a great hope. So let's not be too quick to say, well, it'll just be all right. No, no, let's um, let our words be few. My tendency is always to rush in, as I mentioned earlier. Well, God, you know, God is growing your character. Oh, he'll bring it all to good. You know, maybe he's teaching you something. And all these things can be true, but often it's not what people need to hear in the middle of distress. The reality is is that Job was never told about the court scene. Job was never told that God allowed Satan to test him. And we won't always understand why people suffer in the ways they do. So we're called to be a people of hope and stand with them and pray for them. So lastly, before we pray, what does it mean for the community? Well, when they are suffering, then we do the same as in the church. We do the same as above. We sit with them, we support them, we pray. And like the friends, sometimes our community can believe in yin and yang, in karma, what goes around comes around. Like the friends, they can think, well, you know, you must have, I must have done something wrong in this life or a previous life to deserve what I'm going through. 
And when good things happen, we, they can even sometimes think that God is winning and when bad things happen, that, that God is losing and that it's this some kind of duel. But the book of Job reminds us, no, God is on the throne throughout the whole thing. He is never displaced. In fact, Satan had to go to God to get permission to act in this story, which I recognise might raise a few more questions, but that's for another time. But my point is this, that Job's friends spend 30 chapters trying to prove that suffering happens because of the things that we do in this life or in a previous life. And God debunks the whole lot. It is not your sins, nor your parents' sins that is why you suffer. Obviously, actions have consequences. But as we said before, Job's suffering was not a punishment, just like Job's redemption is not a reward. This is a picture of God's grace and it should encourage us to reach out to people in their time of need, especially in the midst of suffering, suffering, as often it's in those times when they meet with God. You know, when we come to God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead he gives us mercy, honour and grace. So let's too be a people that do the same for our community. Come on, I'm going to pray and then we'll get head back into worship. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up to you all those people that right now are going through distress, maybe illness, suffering of some kind, um, in, in all sorts of different ways. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would fill them with your peace and your presence right now. Would you stand by them? Would you help them to know that you are with them, that you understand? And Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we would... Uh, have the right perspective of ourselves before you. Lord, often we believe that we, we have enough knowledge to be able to determine what the right thing is. And let, yet, Lord, we just want to surrender that view and we just recognise that you are the one that's on the throne, not us. And so, Lord, we're, we're coming to you uh, and we are identifying with you, recognising that you have experienced everything that we have and that you, are, you can identify with us. And so we're just encouraging you, Lord, to fill our lives again, to help us to uh, have your peace and your presence in us, to walk with you daily and to trust you even in the midst of uncertainty. And so I just pray, be with us in your heavenly name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchgilford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.